So we are in Hebrews chapter 12, um, the end of the chapter. I, I thought about just going through the book and finishing it up, going, you know, Sam, we've been here months, you know? I mean, <laughs> how long are we going to drag this Hebrews thing out, for crying out loud? Let's, let's wrap it up, right? So, but I, I don't get to do that. And I don't get to, you know, greet each other with a holy kiss, let's all practice portion of, of Scripture either. He, he gives me the, our God is a consuming fire passage, you know. It's like, well, I don't want to do that one anyway. I'll schedule myself out of town and give it to that other guy. So, yeah, it's, it's a good deal. But uh, let's honor God's word. Let's stand. Let's read Hebrews chapter 12, starting with verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth... How much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful And so worship God acceptably with reverence and with awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to understand not only what you've said, but what it means and how it applies. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for authoring the words. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for teaching us what they mean. Amen. Amen. Thank you. I want to just remind you of what Sam concluded, his portion that, that led into this last week. And, and basically, he, he offered as a challenge to those of you that are still looking as to whether or not Jesus is a viable option to however else you've been ordering and structuring your life, that Jesus is probably better than whatever else you've been trying. Uh, we, we learned earlier in this book of Hebrews that Jesus is not only the one who can forgive from sins, but he's also the one who can cleanse you from a guilty conscience which I would, I would propose to you is harder than simply forgiving sins, right? We have, we have judges just a couple blocks over here all week long, bang the gavel, and they either hold people guilty or they say, not guilty, and they say, there you go. Those judges don't have the capacity to be able to forgive people and cleanse them from a guilty conscience for what they've done. The humiliation of sin, not just the forgiveness of the act of sin, it's a huge thing. And so I would just reiterate what Sam concluded the service with last week, and that is if you're looking for a better option than how you've been running your life, I think Jesus is that better option. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, you are a disciple, you are a Christian, whatever title you would put to that, then I would encourage you to rejoice and act as if you actually believe the things you say you believe, that by faith there's something way better than what we see that is coming. And we behave not in a way that is in keeping with what, where we are. We be, behave in a way that is in keeping with where we're from. We have been born again. We are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are aliens and strangers here. We are foreigners from a different place. We have a spiritual green card. <laughs> we are resident aliens from heaven. And that it's up to us to live and behave in those ways. Why do we call this the book of Hebrews? Some of you that have been hanging around here for a few months. Why is it the book of Hebrews? 
Why is my microphone going off and on, off and on? <laughs> because of the, 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 the people that receive the letter, so there's no address on it, right? So we, don't, we don't get the postmark. But it's like the author is saying, you, you people know all these Old Testament stories. You know all this history. So we just assume that the people that received this letter had to be Hebrew people, had to be Jewish people, because there's an incredible need to understand those first five books of the Bible, especially if you're going to get what this book is about. That's driving you crazy, not just me. I'm really, I'm really glad we got this one. Oh, there we go. Be healed in the name of Jesus. Okay. <laughs> Let's just start over. Let's no. <laughs> so our our ability to understand what's written in this book, and then our ability to say, because that's true, what do I do in my life? Right. That's the application part of it. To do that, there has to be some sort of background or understanding of all of these references that are made to stories that are not actually talked about. Uh, but. You know, given that none of us wants to be here long enough to go back and understand the first five books of the Bible, um, and the fact that a lot of you have been here since the beginning of this series, and so you've had some of these stories alluded to, we're not going to go all the way back through and try to summarize all of that. We're just going to kind of push through as if we understood where things came from so that we can identify where it is we're going. Um, but given that we're very near the end of this book, the, the author says, this is a very brief letter. <laughs> and you're going, yeah, for sure. You know, but the author says it's, a, it's quite a brief letter, and we're down to the closing remarks. Uh, chapter 13 is really just a summary of just personal little things of, hey, remember this, remember this, remember this, remember this. We're really kind of to the end of the teaching time. It's, it, it is important that we understand kind of the structure of this book. So the, the entire book of Hebrews is a series of don't do this, do this. And it's always based on the fact that Jesus is superior to something. And so just repeated throughout the opening chapters of this book, the author of Hebrews is going to say, Jesus is better than that, so don't do this. And because he's better than that, please do this. And then he's going to flip the page and he's going to go, oh, and by the way, Jesus is better than this too, which means you shouldn't do that, but you should do this. That's the structure of this whole thing. And we're down to the last of those. And this is the last of the don't do that. Okay? So that's where we are as we, as we move through this. Have, have you ever been in one of those situations where you looked around and went, how did I get here? You ever been there? Uh, some of the dinosaurs in the room, those pre-GPS drivers. How many of you remember that cars didn't used to have a screen in the middle of the dash that told you where to go? They used to have cars without those. It was an amazing thing. And in those days, you could be driving around and suddenly look out the window and go, how'd we get here? <laughs> Especially those of you that happened to get off the paved roads. And you'd go, I was sure this road was going to take me around a mountain. I was going to end up back at camp. I don't know where I am now. <laughs> How'd I get here? 
For some of you, the how did I get here is more directly related to your credit card bill. Right? It comes in the mail. You open it up and you go, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> when did this happen? <laughs> well, you were just busy charging things and the bank kept track. <laughs> and, and, and here's the thing. If, if, if you had made a planned purchase, I mean, you know, you went down to Home Depot and, you know, you bought one of those refrigerators with 27 doors and a screen in the middle of it, you know, and all of this stuff, you know. And you go, yeah, I made that purchase. I planned on making that purchase. It's reflected on the bill. I get it. So, you know, there's an extra $1,500, $2,000, whatever the refrigerator cost. There it is on the bill. I, I, I knew that. But what happens if you made $1,500 $1, decisions that you didn't actually think too much about? I mean, it's $250 bucks to go to Costco, right? That's the minimum entry fee just to get in and out the door. You know, but there are those times when you go and it's like, oh, man, and we're out of toilet paper and we need paper towels. And, oh, the cranberry muffin things are available. This week we'll get some of those. And cashews in the new bag. You know, <laughs> it's an extra 100 bucks. You have friends coming over for dinner. You need special ingredients. You run over to Fred Meyer. You've got some special ingredients because you want to make a special dinner. And, well, they're really special friends. You buy a little bottle of wine because you want to really have this nice, lovely meal. It's an extra 100 bucks. Had to get the oil changed in the car this month. That's an extra 75 bucks. Had to do that. Wasn't really planning on that. Decided we're going to run over to Brookings for the day because we wanted to get away from the heat because it's so stinking hot. That's another 150 bucks just to get to Harris Beach and back and have something to eat while you're there. See, the credit card bill can be an extra $1,500 because you plan to buy a refrigerator. It can be an extra $1,500 because you made $1,500 decisions. And you didn't bother to keep track of them, but the bank did. And when the bill comes, you go, how did we get here? How did we get here? See, the book of Hebrews is telling us that in terms of eternity, we should end up somewhere on purpose, not just end up somewhere by accident. It starts like this, Hebrews chapter 1. That would be several pages to the left of where you just were. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times, in many ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of his being. He is the sustainer of all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of majesty in heaven. Man, there's a ton of stuff in there. And not in exactly the same order, but just look at what he says about Jesus. He's the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. I love that. It holds all things together by his powerful word. Let me give you maybe an illustration of how this works. This is a Weberism. It's got nothing to do with, you know, real science or, or deep theology. I always wanted to be a theologian. You know, those guys, they, they wear kind of the plaid jackets, and they've got the leather little thing at the elbow, and they smoke a pipe. I wanted to be one of those guys. Those guys are incredible, but... I'm about four languages short in my knowledge base to be able to be one of those. But it says that Jesus holds all things together by the word of his power. I want to give you just a glimpse of what that means and how strong that is. 
So you remember playing with magnets in school, and if you had the opposite end of the magnets, they'd snap together? But if you had the matching ends, if you had two positive ends from two magnets, you tried to, what happened when you tried to push them together? They, right? You, you, I mean, if they were really good magnets, you physically could not put those same poles together, right? Do you know where in the universe that's not true? Hmm? This girl's come up with the answer to every question I've asked so far. Is there a, is there a Philippi button or... You know, like merit badge or something. That this lady needs. Um, she needs the Philippi merit badge. Yes, in the nucleus of every atom. In the nucleus of every atom, there are a series of positively charged protons, and they hang together with incredible force. You know what happens if you move those protons just a little bit apart? Atomic bomb. She stole your merit badge. <laughs> Actually, she knew the answer, but I wouldn't look at her. Yeah, yeah. That's what an atomic bomb is. You accelerate particles and you separate that positive proton just far enough apart that they act the way they do every other place in the universe. And you have a nuclear explosion. The book of Hebrews says that all things are held together by the word of his power. I don't know exactly what that is, but for the sake of my little mind, I assume that the word of Jesus holds the nucleus of every atom in the universe together. And if at any given moment he says, I don't want to hold that together anymore, as Peter says, it is destroyed with an intense heat. Aren't you glad Jesus is holding you together this morning? The rest of us are as well. It would be a mess if he let go. <laughs> He's the sustainer of all things. I would just offer to you once again the premise of the book of Hebrews, and that is whatever you're counting on is not as good as Jesus. He's literally holding you together. Even if you don't believe in him, he's still holding you together. He's the sustainer of all things. The, the book of Colossians wraps up for us, really, the book of Hebrews. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He says that the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, and they have been created for him. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on the earth, whether things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross, and that description in Colossians comes with its own warning. So see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. You see, the question is not whether it makes sense. Do any of you have bad opinions? 
Maybe. See, I'm more, I'm more with this guy. I don't have any bad opinions. If I had a bad opinion, I would change it to a good one, and then I would have all good opinions again. You don't have a bad opinion. If you thought it was bad, you'd change it. You don't walk around going, hey, I know this is wrong, but I like looking stupid, so I'm going to believe it. Nobody does that. You're convinced that your opinion, your perspective, your view, your understanding is correct. That's why you hold that view. The question is not whether something makes sense to you. The question is whether or not it is correct. There's a difference between this is what I think and this is what is true. This is what I prefer. This is what is true. They are not necessarily the same thing. And I know you've heard this before because I've only been here about five or six times. And every time I've been here, Sam has said exactly that same thing. Somehow he's worked it into every sermon I've heard. There is a difference between what is true and what you prefer, what you think, what your perspective is, because you're not God. There is a God. You're not him. And he's right. Sometimes we are right. Lots of times we are wrong. So it's not whether it makes sense. It's whether it's correct. And it's not correct based on my perception. It's not based on my preference. It's not based on how many likes and views it has. I don't know about you. I've got an Apple phone. It's got one of those news feed things. And sometimes the whole news story they want me to read is a series of tweets by other people about their opinion of something that happened. As if I would care at all. I don't know any of those people. Why would I care what they think about a, something that happened that none of us were a part of? And yet if you get enough likes and momentum going, suddenly it's true. <laughs> Scripture says we need to deal with things that are correct all the time, in all places, in for all of eternity, in the entire universe. Which is why Jesus is greater. And it doesn't make any difference what you compare him to. Jesus always wins. This God, creator, savior, ruler of the universe, sustainer of all things, is greater than any other option. Which is why the first warning in Hebrews says, we must pay most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs and wonders and miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What's the warning? That for those of us that have been introduced to Jesus, we should not drift away. And that if drifting away from the previous revelations, think Moses and the mountain and the Ten Commandments and that stuff. He said if they drifted away and it didn't work out well for them, if you drift away from the author of the Ten Commandments, it will not work out well for you. That's the warning. That's the context. The, the, the picture here is literally of somebody who brings their boat into the dock but doesn't bother to tie it up. 
So it's not that they don't believe in docks. It's not that they've never seen the dock. It's not that they've never been to the dock. It's the fact that when they got to the dock, they didn't bother to tie the boat to the dock. And what happens? Wake from a few other boats, a little bit of wind. The next thing you know, the boat's lost. The boat's gone. It's just drifted away. This is not the picture of someone who brings their boat up to the dock, ties it up, gets off, looks around and says, this is a silly dock. I don't like this dock. I prefer another kind of dock. I'm going to untie my boat and I'm going to drive away. That's not what this is talking about. This is someone who at least gets close to Jesus, if not connected to him, but they never tie themselves up to him. And pretty soon, they're the person who would say they believe, but they just start drifting. They start saying things like, well, well, everybody drinks this much. We were just celebrating. They're the people who say, well, everybody cheats a little. A little on their marriage, a little on their commitment, a little on their taxes, a little on their work ethics. They avoid church. So isn't it nice to know that none of you are drifting? Here you are. You're in church. They avoid church. They avoid accountable relationships. Right? Everybody's got those friends. Some of you are desperately trying to ignore them and avoid them. But, you know, they're the ones that come up and say, how you doing? And you give them some answer. And then they go, no, I meant, how are you doing? You know, and you're going, oh, please. Let's not have that conversation. <laughs> right? They avoid those relationships. They avoid fellowship. They're not really running away from Jesus. They're just drifting away. So if the warning is to not drift away, then the encouragement has to be the opposite. Tie on so tightly that you never drift off, even if a hurricane hits the harbor. Your boat's not the one up in the parking lot, right? Hebrews chapter 4, therefore, since we have this great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, and yet he did not sin. So let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Hold firmly to the faith that we profess. Tie on. Why? Because Jesus is in heaven sitting next to the Father advocating for us. We even, even when we're at our worst, he's telling the Father that we're doing our best even when it doesn't look all that good. I mean, you would think that because we have the indwelling spirit, I mean, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead for crying out loud, you'd think if we had that spirit in us, we'd do better. But at times, it's a rather pitiful thing to be human, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. I mean, haven't you ever looked in the mirror and gone, what happened to that guy? <laughs> and Jesus gets that, right? He's tempted just as we are, he is able to sympathize with our weakness. And this is the greater part. He's able to do something about our humanness. And he sits there beside God the Father pleading our case. We call that grace. Grace is what we desperately need, but we do not deserve. 
And if that wasn't good enough, it says that grace is served to us in mercy, which is more of what we need and do not deserve. And so here is Jesus giving us all of this stuff that we need, none of which we deserve, and he is helping us because he gets what it means to be human. But he's God enough to fix it. Yes. Tie up to that. That's what we need to get a hold of. That's what we need to not float away from. Aren't you glad that Jesus treats you like the person you're supposed to be instead of the person you've been? That's a pretty cool thing. I have a favorite line from from literature. It's It's from Don Quixote. He asks this question, is it madness to see others not as they are, but as they were meant to be? I am so grateful that when Jesus looks on me from heaven, he doesn't see who I am. He sees who I was meant to be. And if I'll just tie on to him, I can somehow become that person. That's cool stuff. So that brings us to this final warning. We already read it, but I'll just put it back on the screen. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving this kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So as I said, we are to the, to the, to the end of these warnings. And again, the, the reference goes back to Mount Sinai in, 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 the, in the desert, the children of Israel. You remember the story, right? Moses talks to a burning bush, throws his Stick down, becomes a snake, picks it up, becomes a stick, goes back down, goes to Pharaoh. You know, Charlton Heston, let my people go, right? And, you know, and Pharaoh goes, who is God that I should let these people go? And God says, I'll show you who I am. Ten plagues later, the Egyptians are paying the Israelis to leave. They walk out of there with millions of dollars in reparations. Because the Egyptians have become convinced if these people don't leave, their God's going to kill all of us. So here, don't just go away. Take our money, get out of here, and promise never to come back. Right? So off they go. They get stuck between the devil and the deep blue sea. You ever hear that phrase, right? Pharaoh's behind him going, wait a minute, we just lost all of our free labor. That's not cool. I have to build another pyramid to be buried in so I can enshrine my immortality. And the slaves that are building my pyramid just left. Let's go get them. God leads the Israelites to the part of the Persian Gulf that's there in the Sinai. They've got ocean on one side. They've got Pharaoh and his armies on the other side. God shows up. This is pretty cool. In the middle of the night in this flaming pillar of fire that is on fire on one side, providing light to the Israelites. It is dark on the other side, providing darkness to the Egyptians. He keeps them apart all night, separates the waters with this great wind. The Israelites go through the water. Pharaoh says, hey, never saw that before, but let's go get them. They go in there. Doesn't work out too well. The water comes back. They all drown. Huh? A couple days later, they've got nothing to drink. We get water out of a rock. A few days after that, everybody's getting hungry. We get bisquick from heaven. It's amazing. 
Well, it could have been Bisquick. <laughs> the Hebrew word manna literally means what is it? They didn't know what it was either. So I'm just going with Bisquick. Stuff comes directly from heaven. Apparently it's what angels eat. I don't know. Nobody's ever seen it before. Nobody's ever seen it since. They're drinking water out of rocks. They're getting Bisquick from heaven. Pharaoh and all of his armies are gone. They've got millions of dollars in their possession. They're wandering out across the wilderness. They come and they stand in front of this mountain. God says, hey, you got three days to get yourself ready. Right? So the whole congregation of Philippi is standing out in the Walmart parking lot. Beacon Hill looks like something out of Ghostbusters, this cloud has come down. There's lightning flashing. The whole ground, the valley is shaking. There's this booming voice that comes speaking, and he says, send Sam up here. I want to talk to him. Sam goes up on Beacon Hill, comes back with his, this, this basic agreement, says, here's the deal. God says, I'm going to give you a couple of rules. If you'll behave the rules, he'll hang out with us. We'll hang out with him. We'll rule the world. It's going to be a wonderful thing. What do you think? Oh, that's a great idea. Okay, well, then let's all go up and talk to God. No way, no how. Sam, you go on up there and find out what he wants us to do. Sam goes up on the mountain. Philippi congregation still hanging out in the Walmart parking lot. We're staring up at Beacon Hill. The whole valley's shaking. We got lightning. We got all this stuff going on. Problem is, Sam's up there like forever. I mean, after about a month of it, we're going, well... I mean, I have never been up there on that mountain myself, but I'm looking at what's going on up there. I'm looking at how long the guy's been gone. I'm pretty well thinking he's up there dead. Now what are we going to do? We're out here in the middle of the wilderness. We're drinking water out of a rock, eating Bisquick from heaven. We have no idea. I mean, when's the water going to run out? When's God going to be out of Bisquick? I don't know. This is not looking real good. We need to come up with another plan. Aaron says, I got an idea. You know some of those gold earrings that the Egyptians gave you? Why don't you give them to me? I'll throw them in the fire, and then I'll form together this thing, and it'll look like a golden cow. Then sure enough, the next day, they're all bowing down in front of the golden cow. Thank you for bringing us out of Egypt. You just made it yesterday. You've been out of Egypt for a year. This makes no sense. Moses comes down the mountain. He freaks out, breaks the tablets. I mean, it just... They had a year of miracle after miracle after miracle. Moses is on the mountain for a month, and they've already drifted away. And now they're worshiping a God they just made yesterday. I'm just telling you, I don't care how skilled you are, nothing you make is a God. <laughs> mm. And Paul tells us this interesting thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You didn't know you were going to have to flip all over the New Testament, right? Most of you are going, oh, I don't bother. I'll just believe he's reading it, right? <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says this stuff all happened as an example to us so that we don't do the same dumb thing they did. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud that they all passed through the sea. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They ate the same spiritual food. They drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. That's an incredible picture. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things occurred as examples 
to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Don't be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. That's a very polite word for sexual misconduct. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And don't grumble as some of them did and were killed by a destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples. And they were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. And here's a great promise. No temptation has ever overtaken you except what is common to humans. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. The author of Hebrews says, look, you have not come to a mountain that's got some Ghostbuster thing going on with dark clouds and lightning and voices and earthquakes and shaking. You have come to God himself. Don't do what the people who came to the mountain on earth did because you have been spoken to from the mountain that is in heaven. That's just the picture that he's drawing. I mean, we've been given so much greater of a revelation. We have been forgiven by a much greater sacrifice. We have been promised a much greater reward. They were offered freedom from Pharaoh and a little bit of real estate. We've been offered freedom from Satan and eternity in heaven. He's saying, you've got something much better here. Theirs was always temporary at best. Yours is eternal. And as his book in Hebrews told us earlier, they didn't add faith to what they heard. They reacted to what they heard, but they did not react with faith. That clear understanding, that clear commitment that says there is in fact something greater than what I see, there is something greater than what I feel. And so they drifted away into fear and into selfishness and to immorality, and it didn't go well for them. But if we do not drift away, he says, you have been promised something that is so much greater. Greater than victory over Pharaoh, it's victory over Satan. Greater than freedom from slavery, it is freedom from the slavery to sin itself. And we've been promised this place called heaven. I have to confess to you, I wish I knew what the book of Revelation says. I don't really get it. It's a little confusing to me. If any of you have gotten the book of Revelation down, I'd love to talk to you after service. And then we'll move from there to Ezekiel, and we'll see how well we can do. But I do get some of the descriptions. Look at heaven. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and then there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. That's what God offered the Israelites in the desert. He descended to the mountain and said, hey, let's live together. And they said, no. And we've been given a promise of not just living together with God on the earth. We've been given a promise of living with God on the earth and forever in heaven. It's a pretty cool place. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm going to make everything new. 
And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. For those of us with a different alphabet, I am A to Z, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the springs of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic art, idolaters, and liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. That is the second death. There it is. You'd think, you start to read this book, and you'd think, maybe the Holy Spirit inspired it, and it all ties together and makes sense. I mean, there it is in the first five books of the Bible. There it is in Colossians. There it is in 1 Corinthians. There it is in Hebrews. And here it is in Revelation. The same thought, the same promise, but a promise with a warning that the choices we make have consequences. You know, former President Obaka, Obama, Obaka. <laughs> Apparently, it's an African-American Wookiee, the Obaka. <laughs> not exactly sure what an Obaka is. Right? Barack Obama. I got it right now. He was really fond of talking about being on the right side of history. He used that phrase a lot. That he said it was important that we did things so that we were on the right side of history. I would tell you that Jesus Christ is fond of talking to you about being on the right side of eternity. And by the way, being on the right side of eternity is also to be on the right side of history because to the victor goes the opportunity to write the story. We have been called to an unshakable kingdom that will last forever. There is a new heaven, a new universe, cosmos, that's the word. There's a new heaven, a new universe. And there's a new earth. That's the place where God and humans dwell together. The old order is gone. The old place consumed by fire. Jesus just let go of it. Our future is absolutely amazing. And our responsibility is to live now based on that coming reality that we've already begun to experience. And he gives us some very specific things in this passage that we're looking at in Hebrews this morning. He says, first of all, we are to be thankful. I will tell you that in a society that is infected, absolutely infected with the idea of entitlement. Jesus is asking you to stand up and be absolutely un-American and to be thankful, not entitled. And I will tell you that entitlement is a deceptive thing. I remember the first time I got to sit in the front of the airplane instead of in the back. Because whatever ticket I had was always the ticket next to the bathrooms. That was the ticket that I got. If I was lucky, I moved up one row so I could put my seat back. Most of the time, I was against the wall where the bathroom was. Couldn't put your seat back at all. By some weird fluke of strange circumstances that had nothing to do with me, I came to the airport. They said there's been some sort of mix-up, but we've gotten you another ticket, and you now get to sit in the front of the plane. This was in the olden days. It was a 747. Remember those? Not only was I sitting in the front of the plane, I was sitting upstairs in the front of the plane. I found out that even though they are connected, there are two completely different airplanes in the sky at the same time. 
Because when you sit downstairs at the back of the plane by the bathroom, you have to put everything away. You have to put your seat back up. You have to have all this stuff done. When you sit upstairs in the front of the plane, they don't care whether the thing's down or whether it's up. In fact, you're taxiing down the runway, and the stewardess is still handing you apple juice and orange juice and guava juice, whatever you would like. And they have warm food up there. Not rewarmed, but warm food up there. It was absolutely amazing. The next time I got on an airplane, I said, I should be sitting right up here. This is where I belong. I've sat back in the back by the bathrooms. I've sat upstairs in the front by the pilot. I believe I am a sit up front by the pilot kind of guy. That's who I am. I deserve to be up front. I should be up front. If these people knew who I was, they would put me up front. To this day, I struggle with my sense of entitlement about where I sit on the airplane. <laughs> and now that I'm old, I'm that grumpy guy that does not want to spend the next six hours sitting next to a screaming infant. <laughs> Please, no thank you. Move me to the front. I should always be in the front. The book of Hebrews says, because of the amazingness of Jesus, of who he is, what he has done for us, and what he has promised us, that only gets to me through grace and mercy, which I desperately need, but do not deserve, I should be thankful, not entitled. And it can creep into our very faith where we start believing, I prayed, Jesus deserves, no, I deserve, and Jesus must say yes to my request because I'm such a good Christian. We are to be thankful, not entitled. We are to live our lives with reverence and in awe. We call the expression of reverence and awe worship. Don't let your definition of worship get down to those are the three songs we sing before the old guy gets up and says stuff we're not sure about. That's not what reverence and awe and worship is. Worship is our mindset. It is our lifestyle. It is the very definition of who we are, how we live, and how we think. Jesus said that we are to worship God in spirit and in truth. Have you tied yourself so tightly to the reality of Jesus and his eternal kingdom, tied on with bonds of faith that cannot be broken, so that we are able to tell the other parts of our life, our thoughts, our emotions, our words, and our actions, line up with spirit and truth. Tie up. Don't be drifting away. Worship God in spirit and in truth. Worship is what you do all the time, every day, everywhere you are. Do it with reverence. Do it with awe. Do it in spirit. Do it in truth. And tell your thoughts and emotions to get in line. Because I live as a worshiper of God. It goes from I sing in church because I really like the song to I sing in church because Scripture tells us that we should and God's worthy of the song. And I'm going to sing it to him, even if I don't sing well. Aren't you glad that God hears you singing the way you wished you sound instead of the way you do sound? 
I don't know what happens between my mouth and heaven. I just know that when my song gets from here to there, everybody up there is going, sounds pretty good. Now, the people down here are going, sounds a little rough. People up there are going, sounds great. My whole life should be showing up in heaven, and they should be going, sounds pretty good. Looks pretty good. Like that. We go from people who do what we want to people who do what we should. Ooh, that was worth it. Did you write that one down? At least one of you pretend to write it down and make me feel better about myself. We go from people who do what we want to people who do what we should. We're not drifting away. We become truth tellers, keepers of promises, repayers of debts. We become charitable. We become hospitable. We become morally fit from God's perspective and not from our own. And we get on the right side of eternity, for it is the only reasonable way to live. It's the only safe way to live. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. As much as God loves you, don't mess with him. Remember Mrs. Beaver? Chronicles of Narnia? You remember that? And the children of Adam come, and they're talking with Mrs. Beaver, and Mrs. Beaver says, something's changing in the atmosphere. I think Aslan, Aslan, the great lion, is coming. And the little girl asks Mrs. Beaver, is he safe? And what's Mrs. Beaver's answer? No, he is not safe, but he is good. <laughs> Our God is a consuming fire, but he is good. So what areas of your life, relationships, money, speech, morality, whatever, what area of your life do you need to firmly tie up to Jesus because you're in danger of drifting off? Right? I mean, the rope's always there on the boat. You just got to get out and reach around and tie it to the little cleat on the dock. If you don't do that, if you don't put faith and obedience into what you've come in contact with, you're going to drift away. What, what area of your life do you need to get out there and say, it's not good enough that I'm just close? I need to tie on. I need to tie on. There's an old gospel songwriter that said, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, which is just a polite way of saying whatever appeals to me that really isn't true. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground 
is sinking sand. Jesus, I thank you that in the midst of a shifting universe, you are the solid rock upon which we can stand. You are the unmovable dock to which we can tie up. You are the God of great promise, but of uncompromising morality. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us from ourselves. In your name we pray. Amen.